You come to this morning's message, Unity Threatened, which is actually part two. And we are in a series, for those of you that are visiting today, and we thank you for those that are visiting. We know a number of our people have gone to visit mothers in other places, and some of the mothers may be here visiting with their children. We're glad to have you, but we're in a series on unity, and I want to remind us of Ephesians chapter 4. We will see this again, Lord willing, in two weeks, but it's so important. In, in chapter 4, beginning of verse 3, it said, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, there is one body, one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. <clears throat> Talking there about the unity, that's what this series <clears throat> that we are on, and we will resume John chapter 19 when we're done with the series. Uh, but we have <clears throat> studied, we're in this study on unity, and we realize that God has created all men, and in that sense, we were united as creatures of God. And however, sin came into the world, and as sin came in through man. And so we started the series with what we called unity lacking. And we learned that while God created us in his image and likeness and man has fallen, we learned from Ephesians chapter 2, for example, that men, women, boys, and girls are dead in trespasses and sins. And most, especially today, don't even want to talk about sin. They want to excuse things as diseases, uh, social status problems, uh, sicknesses, in whatever. God believes in calling things for what they are. Sin is sin, period. And people, when you're a sinner, you're dead in that. You might be physically alive, but spiritually dead to God, dead in our trespasses and sins. And he reminds us in that Ephesians passage, even believers were formally walking according to the prince of the power of the air. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, it mentions the fact that, for example, adulterers, idolaters, thieves, and the list goes on, covetous, drunkards, and so forth and alike. And then he says, in such were some of you. Before salvation, we were united to men and that we are physical human beings, but we are all sinners. That is, no relationship with God. Oh, people may practice religion. People may call upon God. Most people do. And even those that don't, usually when they're near death or they get bad news, they're ready to cry out to God. And all of a sudden, they're looking for someone they wanted nothing to do with. But they have no relationship with God, and really, no relationship that is righteous relationship to other men and women around the world. We're just human beings, but people in Europe, people in Africa, and so forth, we're related as human beings, but there's, there's no righteous relationship. So the, there's no unity with God, and there's really no unity with them. They're just human beings, and that's the only sense. We're only related in that sense. There is no unity. And that was before. And then we talked about in our second part of the series, the concept, and this is just in a nutshell that we're dealing with all of this, but the unity then got established. There was a unity that came about, and how did that happen? Uh, through those who have believed the gospel, the good news. That is what unites us. It is the love of the righteous God that is in us. It is a love for the person and work of Jesus Christ. It is the good news. What is the good news? that God so loved us, we couldn't save. Religion on all of its forms basically boils down to some type of system of trying to appease God and please God 
by being good. That's the bottom line of the religions of the world. And God simply says, you can't do it. There isn't anything that you can do that takes away your sin. But he loved us so much that he said, I will intervene. And the gospel of the good news is, rather than we just read it in Romans chapter 6, the wages of sin, the consequence of our sin is death, physically and spiritually. Eternal separation from God and physical separation from this world in what we call death. And God took the action. He loved us so much that he sent his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life, have forgiveness of sins, have the gift of life. So salvation of the good news is it is the gracious act of God. It isn't anything that we do. It's a free gift. God intervenes and he graciously provides salvation. But it's only through Christ. It is only by grace and it is only by Jesus Christ and not the Jesus Christ that people make up. People sometimes say he's a good man, he was a leader, he's one that just came, yeah, etc., etc. No, the God of the scriptures makes it very clear that Jesus Christ is the one who is God, eternally God, who came and took on flesh so that at the birth his name was called Emmanuel, God with us. And he is the sinless son of God, the only one who could satisfy the righteous demands of God because God himself is holy perfectly holy and he must have the payment of that sin and it was through death and so the work of Jesus Christ was his death his burial and his resurrection all according to the scriptures and clearly line out for us and that's the good news and that's why whether the world wants to accept this and you'll hear this again it was in our local newspaper this week the concept of the churches everybody getting together now because of the statement that the president has made and everybody gets together now in all these churches just unite. Listen, we need to reach out to all the people of the world, every person, regardless of what they've done in their life and where they're living. But it's only through Jesus Christ that salvation is provided. He's the one that said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And God satisfied uh, his righteousness through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And it is only through faith. That is belief, not intellectually. As I was growing up, I intellectually believed that Jesus Christ came. I believed that he rose, but my life was not centered on Christ. I didn't belong to him. I hadn't come to him realizing that only through him. I thought that he opened the gates of heaven so I hopefully can get in there. No, he opened the gates of heaven and provided salvation. So if I put my faith in him, I get there because of him. It's all his work, it's faith in him. So he has united us, first of all, to God. He restores that relationship and to one another. And that is where the unity begins. It begins with the gospel. And we need to understand that with all of the things that we are dealing with in this series. Only true believers, true believers, not just professing, but only true believers are one body, one temple, one flock, one building. We are not one with all the religions of the world. Don't kid yourself. Because they call themselves Christian doesn't make them Christian. And because they attach the name of Christ to it doesn't make them Christian. They must believe that the entire salvation plan is found in Jesus Christ. 
And so when we talk about unity, we're talking about unity with humanity, whether it's Africa, whether it's generations ago, whether it's, whether it's Canada, whether it's the United States of America, China, wherever we go, if there is faith in Christ, that's what unites us, not religions. We're not talking about all the, universal, uh, all the universalists getting together and forming a rainbow club to get everyone together. That's not what God has in mind. However, as we're dealing with this series and we're trying to be practical with everyday life things, we come down to the fact that unity is threatened. While we are one in Christ and the gospel brings us together, that is threatened by false teachers, it is threatened by Satan as we have seen, but that is not the center of this study. False teachers need to be dealt with, Satan is a problem, but there's another problem for our concentration and that is the internal threats that come to the unity of the body of Christ. And there are many, but we are dealing with two. And in our message last week, that's why it's in the outline, as we deal with the threats, we are dealing with one of the very practical threats to the unity in the body of Christ. Because for those of you that haven't been here for the series, we are supposed to be known by our love one for another. Christians are supposed to be known for our unity. And if we're honest enough, and we look at all the generations, and we look at all what's going on, we find out that it's anything but unity. Everybody's fighting about everything. And why is that? Well, we're trying to deal with it in a practical sense. So, number one, we saw last week, the first threat is that there are many members. And as we've pointed out, once you go beyond one person and you get two people, you have a problem. All the time. It's the same thing in a marriage. You don't have a marriage with one person, but when you get two, as much as you love one another, as much as you're united to one another, you've got problems. Because there's two people, whether it's the toothpaste, whether it's the laundry, whether it's what you eat, whatever it is, you got a problem. Same thing in the body of Christ, okay? Uh, we need to understand that we are called to preserve the unity. But because there's many members, and this is a good thing, we have different backgrounds, we have different interests, just like in a family. There's different interests, there's different personalities and so forth. Well with the bodies of Christ, there's different races that we've come from, different cultures, different backgrounds, social status, vocations, levels of intelligence, we've talked about all of this. We are not clones as a Christian. And you know what? Praise the Lord. Really, there are many members and we ought to realize that. But it also poses, uh, poses a very practical threat to the body of Christ. And further, we are separated by time and distance from other believers. And there, as we've seen, there's also different levels of maturity. So all of that presents the fact that while we are many members in one body, because there's many members, there's a difficulty. And what we said is God gave us the local church so that in any given locality, be that China, since I've mentioned that, or be that Japan, or be that uh, Germany, or be that Canada, or be that the United States of America, and then even further when you get into the states and in Massachusetts, and then you get down into Methuen. God has designed it that local churches would be together so we could function in unity and come together. It is part of God's plan, not ours. Yet, the fact still remains that because there are many members, even within a local church, local assembly, there's threats and there's, there's challenges just because of the multiplicity of personalities and gifts and so forth. Now, couple this with the second one, and this is today. The second one is our unity internally is threatened by the fact of our flesh. Our flesh. And this is a threat to the unity 
of the body. The fact that we are living in our flesh even though we are saved. Now if you look at Galatians chapter 5 for a minute, let's first of all remember our calling. And this is going to set the tone for our people have already asked very well, and I appreciate that because they're paying attention to the series. Are we going to end up dealing with how we are to respond to one another and how we are to check our attitudes? Yes, but this foundational is so important, I believe, and we're reducing it down. But if you notice Galatians chapter 5, verse 13, for you were called to freedom. What is our call as believers? We are called to freedom. In other words, we have just read in, Gal in Romans chapter 6, that we read the whole chapter, we read a couple of things. Number one, we saw we are not in bondage to sin anymore. Sin and death do not reign over the believer. And they are not to reign in a practical way. We are freed from that. We've been taken out of the prison. Prior to salvation, we just responded to sin only. We had no relationship with God. We were in bondage to sin. The thoughts that came into our mind and in our flesh, we just yielded to them, period, with no defense against it. We've been released from that. We are told in Romans chapter 6, verse 5, we are now practically to walk in newness of life. It's a new life. We had to walk in that. In John chapter 13, we learned what I already quoted. We had to love others as Christ has loved us. That's how we had to do it in the body of Christ. That's all part of freedom. But with that freedom, there's another aspect to it that we need to remind ourselves. Turn with me for just a moment. We're coming right back to Galatians. 1 Peter chapter 1. It was also in the Romans passage we read. In 1 Peter chapter 1, I want you to see this. All believers have been united to Christ in the gospel. That's what unites us, true believers. And that calling is now to freedom, freedom from the bondage of sin and death, yes. But there's many other things, too. But one of the things we need to grasp is 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 14 for time. Watch. As obedient children, what do you mean obedient children? If you're a child of God, if you trusted in Jesus Christ as obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts. Why would he tell that to believers? Because we're still in the flesh. We still have this fleshly body. We still have our minds. And he says... We are to be obedient. We are not to be conformed to our former lusts, which were yours in your ignorance. Verse 15. But like the Holy One, that is what people don't understand. That is why people come up with this, for example, very quickly. Well, all the religions of the world are going up different sides of the mountains and eventually going to get to the top. And God can't be a God that's going to send anyone to hell. You don't understand who God is. God is a holy God. The evidence of it is the fact that Jesus Christ had to come. The payment had to be paid. He can't overlook it. He wouldn't be just. He's perfectly holy. He's just. He is the Holy One. And he's the one that called us. And he says this, verse 15. Be holy yourselves also, watch this, in all of your behavior. Why? Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. We have been called to salvation. We have been united to the body of Christ. And that calling back in Galatians chapter 5 to freedom is one to freedom to be holy. Freedom to be holy to our God. We are called to a life of holiness. You'll notice as it says in Peter, why? We ought to reflect the character of God. 
We ought to be holy because he's holy. We ought to love as Christ loved us. Everything in the Christian life, when we get into these practicalities that we're talking about, and we will be in the next few weeks, as we get into that, our whole uniting to Christ and uniting to one another is a call to reflect the character of God in everything that we do. And for those of you that have been with the series already, keep this in mind. Watch. If I am to reflect the character of God, when somebody differs from me in an area that I am not sure exactly, but I hold the position on this and they hold a little different position, the way I treat them is to reflect the character of God. It isn't to turn around and attack them because they don't do what I do or they think differently. That doesn't reflect the character of God at all. This is foundational. I'm called to freedom, and that freedom is to reflect the character of God. In Ephesians chapter 4, for example, verse 1, I won't turn there. There's your reference. We are told, listen, walk worthy of the calling to which you have been called. What is that? It's the same thing as Galatians chapter 5. I'm called to freedom in Christ, and I am to walk worthy of a, the calling of a child of God in everything that I do, especially as I treat those who I am united with to God. I need to remember that. However, go back to Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. That's not all he says about our calling. I am called to freedom, and he reminds us of this, again, foundational, verse 13. He says, but, or only, do not turn your freedom into an opportunity, and there it is, for the flesh, but by love serve one another. This is foundational. It's a threat to the body. What is? My flesh. I have freedom, but if I use that calling as an opportunity for the flesh, I'm not doing what God wants me to do. That's a basic principle that we will see worked out in the other messages, I hope. But that's a foundational principle. We are still in this body. Sin still can affect us. And in our daily walk, or our daily sanctification as we know it, this new position is not to be a position which is, allow me this, this is what it really means, a base of operations by which I let my flesh just come out. Do you know how many Christians do that to one another? That's just the way I am. And if you don't like it, tough. Leave. Yeah, that's a good attitude. You don't believe that? Well, you have this in your life and so forth. Well, if you were a Christian by now, you'd act this way. That reflects the character of Christ. And by the way, I do this sometimes. Because you're probably saying, you do that, Pastor Dan. We, we do. This isn't a matter of pride here. Honestly, it's convicting. We're to reflect the opportunity. And neither is it to be, as we get to the detail later in the other messages, to be a situation, well, you know, I'm just going to show them the freedom I have. Yeah? That's an opportunity for the flesh. We have this flesh that's here. It's not to be a base of operations for self-indulgence. It's not to be a base of operations for sin. Our responsibility in verse 13, there it again, there it is. This is all under our calling. Our responsibility, according to verse 13, is what? To serve one another. You're called to freedom. You're no longer a slave to sin, and that calling is to reflect the character of God in the whole purpose of serving, not myself. That's not what Christians are called to do. We are called to serve one another. 
We are called to serve our Savior, obviously, and also to serve one another. And how are we to do that? He tells us, but through love. Don't use this freedom for the flesh. Use this freedom for love to serve one another. And in verse 16, look, we're to walk in the Spirit. Look at verse 18. Be led by the Spirit. In other words, our calling is to freedom, and that walk is to be controlled by God and to reflect God in all that we do. In Romans chapter 6, you're reading. Would you go back there for a minute? Turn to Romans chapter 6. I want to just put a couple of key things to you because that's what he says. In Romans chapter 6, and this is, again, dealing with the flesh here. In that chapter, he says, you don't, because you got saved by grace, you don't use that as an excuse to now say, well, I can do anything I want. I can just sin. People often ask that question. You mean to say if somebody had a vile life and they get saved, they can just live any way they want now? No. No. They won't. If they're truly a Christian, they're going to want to obey God. And that's what Romans chapter 6 deals with. And he gives you a couple of key terms. And for time purposes, I'm just going to go to those. He says, if you're really a Christian, you don't want to yield to sin because you're not in that prison anymore. You're not bound by that. And he, the only way you're going to get victory, verse 6, there's participles that are in these, this passage. In verse 6, he says, you need to know something. He says, knowing this, our old self was crucified with him. You need to count on the fact and attribute and have the knowledge that your old self was crucified. You're not to yield to that. It died with Christ. Verse 11. The second thing he says, even so, consider, count on it, reckon it. What? You're dead to sin. Look, count on the fact that yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God. So as a Christian, I'm called to freedom, and I'm called to be dead to sin and alive to God. And then what do you do? Verse 13. In verse 13, he goes on, and he says, in contrast, don't let your members be used as instruments for unrighteousness, but out of the verse, present yourselves, what? To God, as those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments to God. In other words, we are to yield. We are to have the knowledge. We are to reckon it done that we've been crucified and our old man is done. And in the books of Ephesians and Colossians, it talks in these terms. Put off the old man, put on the new. So when you're called to Christ, you're united to God, you're united to other believers, and the objective is to now put on this new life in every aspect, to let it come out, to count yourselves, though we're living in the flesh, you're not going to yield to it. Though you're living in the flesh, don't let it dominate your life. It doesn't have to anymore. But it still has another practical problem. Both individually, even in families, and certainly in a local church. Are we free then to do anything that we want? People have asked that. Are there no standards? No, it's not it at all. We do have differences of opinions. We have different concepts of what this freedom means. We have different concepts. And how is that to work out in our life? Do we just do anything we want? Do we uh, just go our way and just anybody can have any standards? And in a local church, we just do anything? Is that the way you run your family? I hope not. Of course not. There's still different personalities. There's still different understandings. So what are the guidelines? If we don't want our flesh to rule, because there's a danger of that. Let me give you a couple of things. Uh, first of all, 
I skipped over something here. I think I went so fast in my notes. I know I missed something. Yeah, our challenge. I forgot to do that. Let me go back to verse 17. In verse 17 of Galatians chapter 5, it says, Our flesh sets its desire against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another. The challenge is we're in a battle. Individually, collectively, listen, daily, until we meet glorification. We're in a battle. What is the battle? Our new life wants to live for God. I'm trying to summarize verse 17. And our flesh wants to pull us back into sin. If you're a true believer, you have that struggle. An unbeliever does not have that struggle. An unbeliever just goes his way and does what he wants to do. And a real believer has that struggle. He wants to please God, but the flesh wants to pull him back. And we're to recognize that. I also want to mention to you under the challenge, and this is the part I didn't want to overlook and I had skipped for a second. I want you to realize that God's equipped us to win the battle. He has equipped us. That's the second point. We're in the battle, and the challenge is he's equipped us. How? By the indwelling Holy Spirit, number one. According to Ephesians chapter 1, and also you notice chapter 5 of Galatians. In verses 15, 17, and 18, it says, Walk by the Spirit. The spirit lust, uh, or the desire of the spirit, the flesh lusts against it, but the spirit's there. Verse 18, if you be led by the spirit, God has given every single believer the equipment to have victory. Number one, the indwelling Holy Spirit. Number two, he's given us the word of God. We're told that the word of God is sharper and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, but we're also told in 2 Timothy that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, instruction, and righteousness. The man of God may be perfect. God has given us the word of God to help perfect us. Thirdly, he has given us all spiritual gifts. We saw that last week when we read it. We are one body, but we are many members. And according to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and if you want to mark the verses down, verse 11 and verse 18. Every single believer has been given a spiritual gift. No one's been left out. How does he determine that? As he will. Where did he place us in the body? Where he wants us. We're not all teachers. We're not all gifted with the gift of helps. We are not all gifted the same way, just like you're not in a family. God's designed the body with uniqueness, and it's a good thing. But we're to function as a unit, and he's equipped us to do that by giving us spiritual gifts. He's also done one other thing for us, and that is he's given us the armor of Ephesians chapter 6. We ought to put on the armor of God. So God has not only called us to a holy calling and placed us in a battle, he's equipped us for victory. But it is our responsibility, as I was just reading to you, even out of Galatians and out of Romans, it is our responsibility to walk with God. And in that walk with God, while we consider our flesh not to be able to control us, how do we get into the practical matters? Is there any flexibility on where we go or what we think? The answer is yes. 
But there are some restrictions. Stay with me. We are called to freedom in Christ. We've been united with the body of Christ. Where do we start? We start with this. Number one, there's no flexibility in this area. What is that? We cannot violate any direct prohibitions of Scripture. No Christian has the right to do that. If any Christian violates a direct prohibition of Scripture, they cannot say they have the freedom to do that. What do you mean, Pastor Dan? How about these? Drunkenness, idolatry, immorality, covetousness. Uh-oh. That's a direct violation. If a Christian is coveting something and saying it's under their freedom, it's sin. Ephesians chapter 5 makes that very clear. We are not able to do that. So if the scriptures say, do not be drunk, and a Christian is saying, I have the liberty to be drunk, no, you don't. When you're drunk, you're in sin. When you're involved in idolatry, you're in sin. There's no freedom there. When you're involved in an immoral act, and you say, well, I'm called to freedom. Yeah, to live holy. To live holy. So, we're not free to do anything we want. If the scriptures give us a direct prohibition, we are bound by it, even as a believer. Well, that one's easy. I mean, we can look at that and we can see that we're not to be involved in immorality. We're not to be involved in strife. We're not to be involved in jealousy. Uh-oh. That's a direct violation. What else? There's some other things. You are not to violate your conscience. You are not to violate your conscience. Um, for time's sake, go with me to Romans chapter 2. So as a believer, we're called to freedom. But that freedom isn't just... You know, it's like this. Let me try to illustrate it, maybe poorly, but I will attempt to. Are we free in the United States of America? Now, I know if you're really up on things, you're going to say we're losing a lot of our freedoms, Pastor Dan. Yeah, we are. But I thank the Lord we still have freedoms. But when you get a license, for example, let's try to get it to the teens. You know, they're ready to get, my, my daughter's getting there too, right? Getting ready to get the license. She's already, Dad, can I drive today? No. Um, <laughs> she hasn't got her license yet, okay? But, uh, you know, you know what I'm talking about with the license. When you get your license, you're free, right? Yeah, you can drive. And you know, let's let's take the worst case, the best case scenario. You got a class one. You can drive a tractor trailer. You can drive a truck. You can drive everything. You got freedom to drive all of those things. You got a freedom to drive from here to California. Drive to Florida. Have you got the freedom to do anything you want with that? No. Try going 85 when there's a state trooper on the highway. You'll see what freedom you just had. See, you still have restrictions, even within freedom. And that's true in the things of Christ. If there's, a, if there's something direct that God said you can't do, you can't violate that. And the conscience is another thing. Romans chapter 2, there's other texts in, in Timothy and Corinthians, but I think you'll get the point. Even with the unbelievers, we see in verse 15, they show the work of the law written in their hearts. He's talking about the Gentiles. Their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts, watch this, 
alternately accusing or else defending them. And for the sake of time, what I wanted to point out is this. God has given all human beings a conscience. And it isn't Jiminy Cricket. It's the Word of God. And the Word of God guides us. And when that conscience has the Word of God as their guide, it'll show you what is right and wrong. And you have no right to violate your conscience. Hold on to that. Because even as a believer, if there's things in your life, in your past, that have been difficult and you're still having a struggle with them, you cannot violate your conscience or it's sin. So I can't violate a direct probation, probation scripture. And I cannot violate my conscience. And one last thing, go to Romans 14 for a second. Verse 23. He who doubts is condemned if he, uh, if he eats. Oh, no. <laughs> Eating? That could be condemned? Well, no. We'll see the context later. It's dealing with meats and sacrifice to idols and things of this nature. But the point is that I really want to get is because he is eating, his eating is not of faith, for whatever is not of faith is sin. And what I want you to see is this. We are called to freedom in Christ. And we are threatened because there are many members. But the second threat is I'm threatened as an individual, and so are you because we still have this flesh. And in our flesh, there's this battle to want to honor God, but our flesh to just cheat a little bit and give in to the flesh. And that battle everyone's given as a believer. And I'm equipped to win the battle, but that flesh keeps pulling. And when that flesh is pulling, I have to remember a couple of things. While I'm free, I cannot violate anything that God says I cannot do. Second, I cannot violate my conscience when my conscience won't allow me to do something. And we're going to see, for example, in Corinthians, that was the problem. There were people that would violate their conscience if somebody else convinced them to do something. They would go against their conscience. And the third part of it is, I cannot violate God's law by not exercising faith. That's why whatever you do, whether you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. If you can't do something in faith, it's a problem for you. But what's a problem for me may not be a problem for you. What's a problem for you may not be a problem for me. And Christians have trouble with that. They say, if it's a problem for me, it's a problem for you. That's not what the scriptures teach. The scriptures are going to teach us, we will see, that it may be a problem for you and not be a problem for me, but it's not a direct violation of scripture. There's nothing wrong. You have the problem because of your upbringing, because of your background, because of whatever. So you can't do it. So I can't violate those things. Now, that leaves us with some toughies, which is going to lead us into the next section, and I want to prepare you for it. We have, and this is toughies individually, for me, for you. It's toughies within families, and let's take the positive, Christian families. Because even within Christian families, let's say, say you got a family of four, husband, wife, two children. you got a problem. Why? Everyone has a flesh. Everyone views things differently. They can't violate directly what Scripture says they can't do. They do have a conscience that's going to be a little different. They have to exercise faith. 
And also, when you get into a local church, it's even greater. Why? Just take a church like this. Let's say you get 75 people, 100, 150 people, 200 people. I can't imagine what it's like for a, a congregation of 10,000. Praise the Lord, he hasn't called me to a congregation like that. <laughs> You've got all different types of situations. And what about standards? Those areas, now listen carefully, those areas where we must apply principles, but there is no direct statements. Some take the position, uh, if the Bible has a principle, the principles for me and the principles for you the same. Really? That isn't what Paul thought. That isn't what Peter thought. That isn't what Mark thought. That isn't what a lot of scripture teaches. But we have to apply standards. Where the Bible does not explicitly say something is right or something is wrong, we are all affected by many things that I've been talking about the last few weeks. The fact that we're individuals, our background, where we lived, what we've been a part of all of our lives, how intelligent we are, and on and on it goes. These are called, and we will see it, Lord willing, in the next message, matters, listen, of opinion. And that is the word that the scriptures use. It is a matter of opinion. And when you've got matters where the scriptures don't speak directly, and we've got many members, problem number one, and we've got the flesh, problem number two, it's room for disaster. And God's desire, and this is what I want you to catch, and we'll deal with it, is what God wants us to see, since he's brought us together in the gospel, we ought to learn how to love one another and serve one another for the glory of God. And God has uniquely made us, equipped us, and we are different. How do we react when believers are different? How do we think when other believers think differently? Just to prepare you. It's so important, and if you want to memorize something this week in preparation for where we're going, memorize those verses on the side of the walls. If the scriptures do not say something directly, how do I handle it when someone thinks differently? Let me tell you how you don't handle it, but how we usually do. By letting the flesh take over in our lives. Let me prepare you. Take a look at Galatians chapter 5 again. Galatians chapter 5. If you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Verse 18. Now watch this. The deeds of the what? Come on. Flesh. They're evidence. What are they? Immorality, obviously. Impurity. Coarse sensuality, no kidding, idolatry, has to be, sorcery, not a problem. Now watch, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, 
drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. You ever see any of those come up in your life when you react to another believer differing in an opinion on something than you? Let me make it practical. Sometimes what happens is in these areas where we move outside of the direct violation of Scripture, does this ever happen in your life if you're honest? It happens with me. You try to make everybody else live by your convictions. You start judging the people's level of spirituality based on your convictions. You start despising others with mean looks, with gossip behind the scenes, because they don't think like you think. All of that is sin. Or you use your freedom just to prove to the leadership or to prove to the church or to prove to others that you have the freedom. That is sin. Or you put it this way. You showcase your freedom just to prove others are wrong. Or you start judging, listen, the person's relationship to God. If they were a Christian, they would never do that. Why? Because I would never cut my lawn on a Sunday. They can't be a Christian. Really? Who's in sin? Obviously the one that's cutting their lawn. Absolutely not, my friend. It's the quote-unquote mature brother that has no grace. What happens is it's a battle that we all face if we're honest. And what we need to understand that is God has brought us together. What united me so that I know you, you know me, we know one another? It was the gospel. What are we bound to do? I want you to, I'm just a summary of today's message. We are bound to live in freedom for Christ. What does that mean? Live a life that's holy. Well, make it practical, Pastor Dan. The scriptures do that. If the scriptures say you cannot do something, you can't do it as a Christian, period. If you can't do something by faith, you don't do it. If you are going to violate your conscience, you don't do it. What about those other areas where we differ because we come from all of those backgrounds and, and the scriptures don't say it directly? Do we establish standards? Absolutely. Because if you don't, you can't function as a family. Think about it. Let's go back to the family of four. One says, I want to go here. The other one says, I want to go there. And the wife says, but I like this. And the husband says, I like that. So what do you do? You all get together and go different ways. No. You work it out. You work it out. And it's the same thing in the body of Christ. When there's no direct violation and we do get into standards, we do that so that we can operate and function together, as we will see. But we ought to be careful that we don't start judging other people's spirituality. We don't start judging whether or not a person's saved. 
because they don't do what we do or they don't think like we think when there's no direct violation of Scripture. And you know what? That is the whole point of Galatians chapter 5, verse 15. Take care that you don't consume one another. Why? By biting and devouring one another. When? When you're into those areas that are standards. When you're into those areas that are opinions. And that's where we're going to pick it up. How do you deal with those things? But we need to see that the battle is our flesh. Whether a Christian, whether a strong Christian, whether a mature Christian, or a young Christian, and whether we yield to it. God's desire is that we don't allow those threats to take over and go with this in the positive. What he said in Romans, we ought to count that we're not to go back to that life. We've been buried with Christ. We're to yield to the Spirit of God and we're to realize that we're to live for the glory of God in all that we do. How? Galatians chapter 5. In love, serving one another. We'll talk about those attitudes as we expand next week. Let's close in prayer. Our Father in God, we thank you and praise you for the marvelous work of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no doubt in my mind that in this audience, there will be people, young and old, who've been living to try to please you by religion, who are trying to be united to God, united to other, others by religion. When in reality, all are sinners and come short of the glory of God, and the only thing that would ever unite them to you is the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Open up their hearts to the understanding they need to trust in him. Father, those of us who have trusted in Christ have been united to you and united to one another. <clears throat> we have one body, one temple, one flock. Help us to walk with the unity of the Spirit. Help us, Father, to see that we are threatened by the fact that we're many. We're threatened by the fact that we still have a flesh. But help us to walk in holiness. Help us to obey those commands that are directed to us in Scripture. And help us to have grace and love as we consider one another and the differences and the variety that you've provided. And I pray that this would work as a foundation to help us to understand the very practical areas of our Christian walk so that you would get the honor and glory as others see us loving as Christ has loved us. Bless the day. We again thank you for our mothers and pray that you just make it a special day for them. But we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.